I'm really excited to have you here because I have a very deep fascination with neuroscience and consumer behaviors, and you're an expert in those areas. So it'll be a really good conversation to have. Um, but before we get started, please introduce yourself. Yeah, thank you for having me today. So my name is Mathieu Lagente, and uh, I am Associate Professor of Marketing at Ted Rogers School of Management. And uh, I'm also the head of the EMO Lab, which is a consumer neuroscience research lab where we uh, uh, investigate emotional processes in marketing in different marketing situations. And um, uh, yeah, I'm very passionate about the, the role of emotion in consumer behavior. So that's part of my, of my job and my research project as well. Yeah, I mean, consumer behavior is such an interesting area and something we'll definitely dive into today. Uh, so let's talk a bit about it now, actually. Can we start with what is consumer behavior? I feel like it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. Um, people are familiar with it, but no one knows exactly what it entails. So basically, consumer behavior is the study of behaviors in consumption uh, situations. So consumer behaviors is based on very different approaches. Marketing is an applied uh, field. So we used to bring different concepts and methods and theories from other fields of research, uh, sociology, anthropology, neuroscience, uh, very different uh, perspectives to investigate how people react, behave, uh, decide or judge in consumption situations. So you can have very, very different uh, approaches uh, to study how do we perceive marketing stimulus, for instance, how we decide to buy, how we decide to share and to recommend products and services to other people, for instance. Yeah, that, that sounds really interesting. Um, and, and I suppose people are complicated, so it's good that you have different fields uh, or different methods of studying it. Um, uh, like I mentioned before, I, I'm really interested in the neuroscience work that you've done. So can you speak a bit about that and some of the insights that you've gained? Yeah. So the, um, the use of neuroscience methods, for instance, and neuroscience uh, theories into consumer behavior can have very different um, perspective. The, the, the perspective that people used to hear sometimes, especially when we talk about neuromarketing, for instance, it's very focused on the methods. So you probably already hear about fMRI study, you know, when you use the scanner to see the brain uh, uh, functioning when you're exposed to marketing stimulus or stuff like this. So obviously consumer neuroscience is about method, but it's also about uh, theory and how you can bring different perspective on one marketing issue. So um, I can give you an example if you want. Um, I worked, I've been supervised by a professor in France and he published a very interesting paper without any kind of, you know, neuroscience methods. But the way he approached the marketing problem uh, was very interesting because he noticed that on TV advertising, for instance, you can see the product, and in some advertising, you can see a character using the product. So it was interesting to know, okay, what is the most efficient? And he brings this neuroscience perspective, and he said, in neuroscience, we know that we have uh, a type of uh, neurons in the brain, in the, in the motor cortex in the brain, that's called myroneurons. Those myroneurons help us to imitate and to reproduce the same movement, the same gestures of other people when we observe them. So let's say that you want to learn a new sport, something like this. The first thing that the coach will tell you is just watch before to execute the movement, you know, because when you watch the movement, the brain is already reproducing the same movement. It's like 
simulating the movement. And once you have to produce the movement yourself, then it's much easier, it's more fluent. So the thing is, in the advertising, for instance, if you see someone using the product, as a consumer, when you see that, then probably the brain is already reproducing this gesture, you know, it's simulating the experience of using the product. So it compares two types of advertising. One advertising is only showing the product, and on the other advertising, you see a character using the product. And the results were very, very interesting, because you see that when you have an advertising, when the character is using the product, all the metrics, like you know, attitudes toward the brand, attitudes toward the product, uh, intention to buy, and so on, when, were significantly higher than for the advertising when you only see the product. So th that's a typical example where you can use neuroscience without any you know, fancy methods like fMRI and so on. You, you just bring another perspective on a very you know, common topic in, in marketing research. You know, advertising efficiency is very usual. But bringing this new perspective from neuroscience brings new results and a new way to perceive how does advertising work. Right. So that's really fascinating. Is, I suppose when you see someone using a product, um, is there like some neuroplasticity that's occurring as your brain is coming up with that gesture itself or trying to imitate it? Um, I'm not sure about neuroplasticity, but what I'm sure about is that there is, as I said, there is this uh, type of neuro neurons we have in the brain. Right. And those neurons work, I mean, it doesn't work only for the advertising, obviously. It works for uh, even social interaction. You know, we are discussing together now and um, I can uh, empathize with you because of those neurons. I can see your facial expressions and then I can adapt my own facial expressions to be sure that we have this natural connection between us. So... And we can do this because part of our brain is reproducing the same type of gesture. So I'm like resonating with you because of those neurons. So the same goes for the advertising. You're telling a story through the advertising. You see people using the product. They have fun with the product. You know, they get some pleasure, positive emotion. So when you watch the advertising, you are also in the story. You're like anticipating what it would be to use the product to get pleasure from using the product. So you're still convinced that this product might be good for me, you know, because the brain has already this first experience with the product, even though it was not for real. It's just like a simulation through the advertising. But the fact is that the brain is recording this experience as a true experience. So is, so is that like a form of embodiment almost? Uh, sorry, what? Embodiment? Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. It's a type of embodiment. So you're like, you know, experiencing all the feelings and the experience with the character in the advertising with the product. That's why some sometimes I'm, uh, I like the um, car maker advertising because they, most of the time, especially when they target family, they don't show the, the, the product. They show how you can have fun with the product. So you see all this family, they are all smiling, they're all preparing for the weekend, they have fun. You know, you, you, you see they are very happy. You know, they are connected, they are happy. And why they are so happy? It's because of the car, obviously. But you don't show the car, you don't show the engine performances and stuff like that. that the, people don't care about this. They care about what I will feel when I will drive my car with my family. And what you will feel, then you will feel happiness. And then you're, you know, you're seeing this happiness through the advertising. You say, okay, if I want to have the same experience, I should probably consider to buy this car. Right. Well, it's really interesting you say that because most car advertisements or ads 
they they usually do just have a bunch of smiling people going on an adventure, having a good time. I, I can't really remember the last time that they talk about the specs of it or how fast it drives. It's all about like, you know, a beautiful surroundings yeah. and fun people. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, so if we sort of talk a bit more about consumer behavior then, so neuroscience is one of the tools that is being used uh, to study the way people consume. Um, so how, I suppose, what are like some of the other tools that are used and what's most common? Like what has been seen to be very effective in informing people's behaviors? Uh, what do you mean? The, the type of methods that we use in, in neuroscience? Yeah, or, or, or like what, what has been very, like you gave an example of something that was very effective. What's something else that's very effective? So that's, that's something I think very important to understand when we are interested in consumer behavior is that emotion is everywhere in our behaviors, you know. For during long times, we thought that emotion was our worst enemy, you know. Uh, you have to uh, decide, um, uh, I don't know if you say that in English, like cold head, you know, like you, you, you put away your emotion because you have to make a big decision. And emotion is is not the, the, the right feelings that you should have when you make a big, a big decision. Actually, it's the, exactly the opposite. Any kind of decision we make is always based on emotion. You can't have a good decision making if you don't have any emotion. Um, when I was a, a PhD student in France, um, I worked in a unit at the hospital and they were specialized in uh, the implementation of uh, electrodes in the brain to deal with uh, Parkinson's disease. And uh, so it's, it has nothing to do with marketing, but you will see the, 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 the knowledge we can get from, from neuroscience, even from clinical neuroscience. And um, so basically the, 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 the system is quite simple to understand. You target one specific uh, brain part and you put this needle into the brain and, and people who have Parkinson's disease, then they can have a remote control. And when they have, you know, like shaky movements or when they have uncontrollable movement like this, they can use the remote control then activate the needle and they have a short electrical shock into the brain. So it will inhibit some part of the brain and they will help them to recover their behavior and to have a, let's say, a normal behavior. The fact is when we um, observe that people over the long term, we also observe that some of them tends to take uh, a lot of risk in their daily life. And at some point, the, the, the research team figured out that there is probably a correlation between the intervention, you know, to put the needle into the brain, and then the subsequent behaviors they observed. And actually, the result is that when you use those needles into the brain and you target specific brain area, you don't only inhibit the disease of Parkinson, you also inhibit negative emotion. When you have no negative emotion, you don't perceive the risk that is in your surrounding. Something that is hot, for instance, the, the, the vacuum when you're on the balcony, uh, the cars that's coming to the streets, you know, all of those dangers that we used to live with every day, we, we can make good decisions to protect our life because we have such negative emotions. It is a signal that shows you that, hey, something happened here and you have to adapt to the situation. You have to choose the right option to stay alive, you know, and to move on in your life. But once you don't have those negative emotions, it's quite impossible to make a good decision. So you see that one of the... I think very interesting uh, insight from consumer neuroscience is that if you want to know how people decide, 
how they judge and perceive things uh, in marketing, for instance, then you have to consider emotion because emotion is always the mediating effect between exposure to something like packaging, advertising, whatever the, the marketing stimulus you, you consider and the subsequent behaviors. Well, that, yeah, that's really interesting. So based on what you've said, maybe it would be good to sort of define what emotion is because I feel like it's a very broad area and people see it differently, right? Like I think about emotion and I think about happiness or I think about, uh, I don't know, people being upset, right? Like something very sort of primal almost. So, but it sounds like there's a lot more to emotion. Yeah, so defining emotion is very challenging because there are so many different approaches and perspectives and, and they still have this hot debate into the, the, the academic community about what an emotion is. And actually this debate is not new. I think it's a debate that lasts since 2000 years now. Uh, if you read some, uh, you know, ancient uh, books, uh, uh, the, yeah, like 2000s ago, Platon and, and other Greek philosophers, they were also debating about what an emotion is. So, but what I can say uh, that an emotion is a very short episodic uh, um, reactions to a relevant event. Uh, I think this idea of relevance is very important. You do not react to everything every day. That's impossible. Our body, our human body, is not made to react to anything that's happened in your surroundings. So the brain is like, it's like a computer that processes all the stimulus and all the, the events that, is, that are in your surrounding. And then it will choose the right event that is relevant for you. So uh, let's say we talked about car and uh, you're tired to commute every day with public transport and you're considering to buy a car and you walk through the street and you have your cup in the right hand and you have your phone on the left hand and you're working and you're thinking about your next meeting. So you're pretty busy. And you walk through the street, you're not noticing everything into the street. You're not you know, processing all the faces of people, all the events, all the, the cars that come to the street and so on. You, it's, it's too much information for you. But if there is this billboard with this nice car on the billboard, you'll see it. Because the brain noticed that, oh, this is an important information for you. Because you are considering buying a car, you are collecting information, you are comparing options and so on. And this is another option for you. So you will probably not see the advertising for fast food restaurants. You will not see advertising for perfumes or any kind of other product like this. But this one, you'll see it because this is relevant for you. So an emotion is always related to relevant events. Then an emotion is also about adaptation. You have an emotion because something unexpected happened or something that you expect didn't, didn't happen. So it means that your, um, what you anticipated did not happen and then you have to adapt to a new reality. So an emotion is what prepares your body to react to a new reality and then to adapt your behavior to this new reality, to make the good decision and then to be sure that you are uh, safe and, and well. Right. So emotions, you mentioned it's an episodic thing. So it, it happens yeah. very quickly and then it's gone. So uh, I suppose then it's like you have state of being and you have emotion. So it, it almost seems like something happens. You're triggered to feel a certain emotion and then you're in a particular state and state lasts longer. Can you sort of describe the relationship between the two? Yeah. So 
to understand this difference between an emotional reaction that is very short and uh, a state like mood, for instance, we need to understand that how our brain is, is working. So basically, we do not react to events in our surrounding. The brain is always anticipating that what will happen in the future. So the brain is like building uh, anticipation and what would be your reality in the future. So they have like this mapping of your life, you know, and they say, okay, it should happen like this. It should happen like that. And it will adapt your body to this reality that it has anticipated. But when some things happen that will, you know, um, um, show, show a different reality that the brain did not expect it, then you have to adapt to this new reality. And basically you have two different options. You can accept this new reality quite quickly and then you will, you know, readapt your uh, feelings, your sensations, your emotional states, and so on. And then you will go back to a baseline because you say, okay, that's a new reality. I accept this new reality and I will adapt and move on. Or sometimes it's, it's complicated to adapt to this new reality. When you lose someone, for instance, someone you love very much, you know, uh, it's, it, it takes time to accept this new reality that you will never see again this person, you know. So mm -hmm. there is the trigger of the event that. Uh, you lose someone and, and someone call you say your dad passed away or something like this and it's it's very helpful uh, so that's the first shock this the emotion you didn't expect that and it happened now so you have to adapt to this new reality but how long would you take to accept this new reality some people accept it quite quickly and then their state their mood for instance their sadness will not last for long but other people they need more time to accept this new reality so there is the, the emotional reactions that signal the new reality, and then you have the state that lasts more or less depending on people. You have people who adapt very quickly, and you have people who struggle more to adapt to the new reality. So how would one sort of have a bit more control over their emotion and state? Uh, is, are there any mechanisms that an individual can use? Let's say something tragic does happen, and there's, there's grief, right? Um, how can you, how can a person help themselves or someone else help somebody deal with that and come to accept it sooner so that the state passes faster? So I'm going to say is not from, from, from me or from, from my research. Uh, I'm, I'm just referring to uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, who is uh, one of the big names in emotion science. And uh, in one of her book, How Emotions Are Made, she said that one of the solutions to adapt more quickly, you know, and, and to be more uh, adaptive to, to new situations is to train the brain with new words and new concepts. So it, it might look weird, but you need to consider that our emotions and the, the way we describe our emotion are social concepts. It doesn't exist in the reality, you know. For the brain, for our body, it's just signals, you know. It's just change in temperature, lighting, or, you know, it's, it's pure physics. But for us, because we are social animals, we put words and concepts and expressions and culture over those feelings, body feelings. So those words that describe a new reality, the more you have vocabulary, the more you can describe precisely what is going on. And then you can figure out what the new reality is and how you can adapt to this new reality. You know, it's like kids. When kids cannot speak because they, they have a very limited vocabulary, they tend to fight and, and to throw fists and, and just, you know, to have these violent behaviors because they don't know how to express their feelings. 
But once you know that, okay, what I'm feeling right now is not exactly anger. It's, it's, uh, maybe I'm just upset, you know? I'm not mad, but I'm, there is a deceptive situation. So they can describe more precisely what they have, and then they can choose the right behaviors to adapt to the situation. So the more you are exposed to stories, you read books, you gain new vocabularies, it will help you to figure out the situation, you know, and also to say, well, actually, it's not black or white, you know, the reality is more, more subtle. And the more you have subtle vocabularies, the more you can catch the subtleties of the reality and then to adapt to the new reality. So it's not the only solution, obviously, but I'm sure that that's something that can help people to deal with different situations because different situations bring different types of emotion. It's not only happiness or sadness, you know? It's not only anxiety or anger. It's, it's more complicated than this. So what about like physical activities? Uh, for instance, you you know you're going through a tough time and you just start going to the gym every day and trying to work out that frustration and what you're feeling. Um, it, is that also effective, or is, are things like language and verbiage the better route to go? So, the, the, sorry, the the question of of uh, physical activity is is interesting as well because basically, an emotion is um, consume a lot of energy. Okay, a lot of energy because it uh, it needs to bring different attentional resources, emotional resources. So that's why an emotion doesn't last for long because it's it's too too much in terms of energy for the human boy, uh, body. So when you have this, let's say this very tragic event that's coming into your family, and then you have to deal with this new reality, and it takes time for you to recover from the from what happened, uh, you're also consuming your energy. So if you are in good health, you uh, you work out, you know, you you have this um, stock of energy, you know, then you can use this energy to cope with the new situation. It's not only a, a psychological things, the body and the brain. It's it's the same machine, you know. I know that we tend to separate what it is in the head and what is in the body. Uh, there is the brain and there is the body, and it's separated, but it's not. It's it's the so- same whole machine. So. Something that affects your psychology affects your body, you know. Uh, if you accept more easily the new reality and, and you want to fight, you have this, you know, willingness to fight uh, against the disease, for instance, you know, it will affect your body as well. So if you train your body, if you train your, your brain, if I can say like this, then obviously at the end you have more chance to cope with the situation and to be successful in this process. That, that, that's fascinating. And sticking with this idea of, of, I suppose, trying to control your emotions a bit, um, environment. So like the environment that you're in, does that also inform your emotions? So like if I'm in a very dark room versus a very bright and lit room, uh, will that change how I feel? Um, yes, probably. I mean, all of those external factors can affect your mood and your state. Uh, so if you're, let's say, you're comfortable with um, a hot, uh, very bright space, for instance, because you feel more safe in that such space, then I guess, yes, it's it's probably better for you. But I don't have any, um, I would say, expertise or knowledge about this, the, the, the effect of external factors on your on your body. But yes, for sure, it's, it affects your, your behavior and, and your emotional state as well. Right. I, I asked that because I was thinking of um, 
Well, one of the big trends that's currently happening in the industry is you have baby boomers that are retiring. Um, and so obviously there's a lot of work being done on wills and, you know, transition of assets. And it's forcing people to sort of look at their mortality, right? And, and that's not really a subject that's very comfortable for many people. And it's not a fun subject. Um, so I was just thinking if you were to be an advisor and you needed to have like a difficult conversation, how you could make that better. Or not just an advisor, like anyone who has to have a difficult conversation with someone else about, you know, uncomfortable topics. What can you do to help that person's emotions, you know, stay at a certain base level and not do anything to uh, just expedite it too much? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure that to have uh, an exact solution for this type of interaction, but maybe one thing I could I could say is that it's 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 all about empathy, you know, and empathy is about emotional connection with people. So the way you talk. Um, how you express your uh, your feelings, how you connect with the other person is about, um, you know, like imitating and and mirroring the the other's behavior. So um, that that's something I, I used to observe with my students. I, sometimes I watch them; they don't know that, but I watch them, and it's, it's very it's fascinating because you see that when they are talking, there is a group of students. You know, they are outside of the classroom and they're talking together, and you have like one student talking to the group and let's say that this student is crossing their arm like this and in few seconds you will see that all the people into the group that will also crossing their arm and if they feel a bit uncomfortable because you're too close to them then they will step back a little bit and you'll see that the group will step back as well so we are connected and and this feeling of you know uh, safety that we are comfortable we can talk even about difficult uh, topic, you know, to have a difficult conversation, it's easier if you have this physical connection with people. And um, I, I know that's something we uh, we can learn uh, at school, for instance, or at the university or a different uh, program, that if you want to bring more uh, connection with your customer, then you have to imitate them. So it, it shouldn't be too caricatural, you know, it's like, oh, he's doing this, so I'm doing this as well, you know, it's <laughs> because that's too much probably, but it's it's just a matter of it's still, it's a matter of subtleties, but also about uh, about connection, you know, and how the other is feeling about how I bring the conversation, how I'm talking about this specific topic. If you see that they are stepping back like this and they're crossing their arm, it means that they probably don't want to talk about it, or at least they are uncomfortable. So you should try to first to notice that kind of nonverbal behaviors, and then to see, okay, how I react to these nonverbal behaviors, how I can going on with the with the conversation without putting these customers in a very uncomfortable situation you know so it's it's for the topic you mentioned but for any other kind of uncomfortable conversation like this uh i would say it's just a matter of emotional intelligence in a way you know it's, it's to have this intelligence to notice others behaviors and to adapt to their behaviors sometimes let people speak is the best way to let them to put them in a comfortable situation you know, we tend to, we don't like blank in a conversation. Right. You see? <laughs> you, you, want, you want to talk, you want to jump into the conversation because the blank is, is uncomfortable. But sometimes it, it gives space to people to speak. You don't judge them, you don't advise them anything, you just let them speak. And you show them that I'm here to listen. Okay? I'm not here to deliver a good solution, the best option for you, whatever. I'm just here to listen. So that, that's the first step. I give you the space, the safe space you need to express yourself. 
And then maybe afterward, if I feel that I can give you some advice that will be profitable for you, then I can do it. But still, I'll do it with, in a way that puts my, my uh, friend or customers or whatever in a comfortable situation. I'm not judgmental. I'm not, uh, you know, bossy or whatever. I'm just suggesting. Based on what you said, I would probably advise you to do this or to do that. What do you think about it? And then still give space to the others so they can express themselves, you know? So it's a matter of empathy and emotional intelligence. Right. Um, and I want to talk about both of those things, empathy and emotional intelligence. But it, what you said, it seems like it should be really a very uh, two-way street. So you shouldn't try to overpower the conversation or try to structure it too much to the point where... Uh, you have the whole conversation already planned out in your head. You need to give space to the other individual to also be able to express themselves and, uh, I suppose, have a true dialogue where there is give and take. Um, yeah. So that, that sounds like a good recipe. But let's, uh, let's talk about emotional intelligence. So you mentioned that in your uh, just a few minutes ago. Um, emotional intelligence is something that has gained a lot more traction over the past couple of years. It's something that people are speaking more about. But I think it's still a bit of an abstract for some folks, right? Like we hear about IQ and EQ, but what are these things really? Like is emotional intelligence just being able to read a person or is there more to it? Well, um, still emotional intelligence can have very different definitions, but let's say that Emotional intelligence is your capacity to, to read and to understand others' emotional signals. So what they say, how they say it, uh, what they express through, through their, their posture, their vocalizations, their facial expressions as well. And um, you know something fascinating here in Toronto is that we all have different cultural background and we all have different ways to express our emotion. We most of us, we have a first language and we can express our emotion in a way that is not exactly the same that we express our emotion in English, for instance, you know. So, you know, to, to have this capacity to understand what is the emotional state of others based on their non-verbal non uh, uh, behaviors and stuff like this make you feel more um, comfortable with other people because you adapt to them. And they feel that you're adapting to them as well. So eventually you can create this emotional connection. It's not like a, a freaky or weird conversation because you feel that we are not on the same page. You know, we don't understand each other because when I smile, you frown, and uh, and when I, I'm st I'm still neutral, then you you have these weird reactions, and uh, it doesn't fit in the conversation. You see, so emotional intelligence is about yes, noticing others' emotional signals and then to adapt to those signals. But it, I would say emotional intelligence is such. Um, you know, fancy stuff that they didn't really uh, create or, or discover something special. It's just about emotion, empathy, uh, social interaction, but they bring all of those concepts into one catchy concept, emotional intelligence. But eventually, if you dig a little bit into this concept, you will see that it's, it's always about emotion, empathy, uh, uh, social sharing. So concept that we know in psychology since years now. Well, to me, it sounds like it's just about being human. Yeah, in a way, because <laughs> human beings, uh, we are emotional beings. So, yes, it's just to uh, tap into our emotional resources to show our human kindness, in a way, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, when I was going through some of your research, I came across uh, a phrase called empathetic capacity. 
What is that? Oh, <laughs> oh so that's that's my big project. Um, it's uh, it started with something I observed during the COVID, uh, especially during the lockdown, um, because there, I observed two things. First thing is that because of the lockdown and because of the social distancing, we didn't have much opportunity to have a face-to-face -face interaction with people, and especially because I'm I'm a professor uh, in marketing. Uh, what happened with the customers who wanted to connect with the companies, you know? So in the past, we used to, to go to the company, to the store, and to have an interaction with frontline employees. But with the pandemic, it was not possible. So we had to adapt and to use different channels for communicating with the company. So you can use live chat, chatbots, emails, online questionnaire, or whatever. So all of those technology-mediated communication. The other thing I observed as well is that there is this um, trend in the industry that companies want to emotionally connect with their customers. Uh, we talked about customer journey, you know, the, the journey through the customers go through when they want to buy a product, when they are seeking information for the product and so on. So they, they will be in contact with different touch points and all of those touch points have to give the customers positive experience. They have to be in a seamless journey when they always have positive experience about the brand. So... My question was, okay, how is that possible to have this emotional connection if you never see them? If, if you're always talking to your customer through a screen, an application, and an AI uh, application, stuff like this. Because, uh, as I said in, in our conversation, emotional connection starts with detection of nonverbal signals of emotion. But when you don't see your customers, how would you detect those emotional signals? That's quite impossible. So... When I started to think about this, um, I said, okay, as a human beings, when we have an emotion, we want to share our emotion. It's a social sharing of emotion. The best example I can give you now is the success of social media. Every time you have something, every time something good happened to you, you're happy, you're delighted or whatever, you take a picture and you post it on the social media. You want to share it with people, at least to share with your relatives. And when something bad happened to you, uh, still, you want to share with your relatives, with your friends. We need to get relief from other people by sharing our emotion. So if I'm a customer, and let's say that there is a service failure, I buy this service, I buy this product, but it didn't work. I'm upset, and I seek support from the company. So when I contact my company, I have those emotions that are part of my experience, but the company cannot see my, my emotion, how, how they will react and what kind of support they are going to show me based on this type of communication. So um, based on that, I assume that probably, I know it's a strong word, but probably that in the future, companies will have a behavior that is similar to psychopath. Because from a clinical perspective, a psychopath is someone who can understand others' affective and, and, uh, and mental states. They can really understand what you feel. Why do you feel those emotions? What is the event that triggers this emotion? How would you react to the emotion? What is your future behavior based on this emotion? They, they know pretty much everything about your behavior, but they can't share your emotion. They don't feel your sadness. They don't feel your, your fear or your anger or whatever. They are cold like a stone. That's why it makes this... Uh, um, clinical issues dangerous for the society in a way because they can be very manipulative. So if I'm a frontline worker and I work only online and I receive 
complaints and, and messages from my customers, they have different emotion, you know, negative emotion. They are anxious, they are angry, um, they are mad about the service failure or whatever. So I just have information about the state, but I can feel that emotion because I don't see them, you know. And at the same time, I have access to big data. I know pretty much everything about the customers. I know every product they bought in the, in the past. I know exactly what they like, what they don't like, and so on. So my guess is that the, 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 opportunity, the opportunity you have to manipulate the customer is high. And there is no empathetic process that will refrain you to be manipulative because you don't see the customer. It's just a number in a large database and you're just, you know, working for the company to make profits or stuff like this. So in, in the opposite, if you're interacting in face-to-face -face with the customer, you are a human being. You work for a company, you have specific goals and so on, but still, you are a human being and you have this empathetic connection with the customers that will necessarily affect your behavior. When you see someone sad, someone anxious, someone afraid or whatever, it affects your behaviors because you have this empathetic process. So your behavior might be different. And last year, I uh, conducted uh, an experiment to compare how frontline employees will react when they interact with uh, an emotional customers online or in face-to-face. -face. And the results uh, confirmed my assumption is that when you interact with customers online, the willingness to um, uh, show pro-social behaviors to help customers to show support decreased significantly. However, when you have this face-to-face -face conversation, those pro-social service behaviors increase. And, and those behaviors are mediated by your affective empathy. Do you have empathy for customers or you don't have any kind of empathy? And the, the technology-mediated communication is a filter that refrain and, and decrease your capacity to empathize with customer. So that's a question. How can you claim that you want to emotionally connect with the customers if you put automation everywhere. So one of the solutions is to decide where and when customers need to share their emotion and when they don't need to share their emotion. You want to withdraw money, the best option you have is to, to, to use the ATM. When you withdraw money, you don't have any kind of emotion. It would be a burden to tell to the teller every time you want to withdraw 20 bucks, I'm here to withdraw 20 bucks, okay? It's too much work for just withdrawing money. So ATM is fine, no worries. But if something bad happened to me, or I want to buy a house, I'm excited about this, this purchase, or I lost someone and I have to manage the, the bank account, stuff like this, I would probably prefer to talk to someone rather than to talk to a machine. Right, and that makes sense. And I think firms realize this. Uh, I mean, I do a fair bit of research uh, for the firms in the financial industry. And so they're all sort of, taking a hybrid approach because they've been asking themselves these very same questions that you mentioned here, which is we obviously want to provide our clients with a good experience because uh, that breeds loyalty. And so you want a good experience with your client. Um, but at the same time, they don't always need you, right? Because right now we are in a very digital world. People yep. want service when they want it, where they want it, how they want it. Um, and they don't always necessarily need to speak with an individual to get that service because to your point, it could be something very simple like mm. withdrawing money or I want to transfer product A to account B or, or whatever it might be, right? 
um, in, in those cases, these are like very emotionalist processes. You know exactly what you want. It's very quick. It's prescribed, and you can do it yourself. But on the other hand, when it's something a bit more complicated, for instance, the purchase of a home, you're going to want an advisor there. You're going to want you know someone to help you with your mortgage, someone to help you with insurance. Um, and so, in that sense, what I've seen is that firms have been trying to sort of take this hybrid approach and provide those more personal human touch points to clients to, to have a better experience. So I think it's really fascinating how you're doing research into this area. But you mentioned COVID. Um, how has COVID changed things in terms of consumer behavior? Are people now inclined to consume things differently or have a different decision-making process as a result of the lockdowns and just everything that's happened? Uh, so that's that's a big question, actually, because we all know that COVID brings uh, different behaviors and different habits, uh, especially for consumption. Um, so one of the things that is interesting, I think, is how COVID accelerated the implementation of automated uh, service system in uh, at the organizational front lines. You have probably noticed that there are uh, grocery stores now who have increased the number of self-checkout system, and people are willing are more willing to accept those uh, self-checkout system, for instance, because of what we hear about social distancing, how important it was at some at some point to you know keep away from people because of the the COVID nineteen and so on. So, I think COVID nineteen has make a, a shift in our culture, in our society, to accept more technology and more automated system. Um, if you if you see the um, the forecast of of the uh, uh, the investment in terms of uh, robotics and and the automated system as well, you will see a huge increase the last two years because the demand is here, you know, and and customers are ready to deal with those automated system, which was not uh, I mean. They started to, to, to accept the system two or three years ago, but it was still complicated. You know, For instance, there is this um, uh, research project that I work on is uh, how customers will hijack automated system, like to fight back against the company who imposed those automated system. Actually, it costs billions of dollars every year to uh, grocery stores and stuff like this because they, they use automated self-checkout system and some people, some customers, think that this is unfair because the company is asking customers to work for the company for free. Because if you think about it, uh, in the past, you have um, uh, employees who take part of this job, you know? So you bring your stuff, uh, you know, at the, at the checkout and they scan the products. They ask you, how would you like to pay? Do you have a, a loyalty program, a card? Uh, how many bags do you want? So th there is a service. Now, you are the operator. You know, you go to the self-checkout system and you have to operate the machine. You scan the products, you decide the bags you need, you scan your uh, uh, credit card and your loyalty card as well. So you do everything that was done by an employee in the past. So some customers assume that this is unfair because you work for the company, basically, for free. And they want to fight back. So you have very, I would say, funny story, at least uh, interesting story, like someone who stole a PlayStation 
in a store. He went to the, you know, the, the veggie and fruit department in the store. He print a short sticker, you know, a, a label price for a banana. So less than a dollar, like a few cents. And he stick the label on the PlayStation box. And then he went to the self-checkout system. He scanned the PlayStation box. Nobody's noticed anything. He paid the PlayStation for less than a dollar. Oh, wow. You know, so they, they can cheat the system. They know how to cheat the system. And one of the motivation is because they feel this is unfair. So what is interesting with um, this implementation of automated system is a large part of the population is accepting those technology. And I think COVID-19 has, you know, um, yeah, accelerated this, this willingness to use automated self-checkout system, for instance. But you also have a lot of people who think that this is unfair and they are hijacking the system. They know how to cheat with the system. And they said, when you ask them the question, why, why do you st steal products? They say, I'm not stealing. It's because it's unfair. So for me, it's like a reward. I work for the company, I should get a reward. And now you have some companies who are uh, going back to a traditional uh, checkout system to have a more balanced system. They not automized everything. They not go back only to the traditional system, but they provide like different services because customers, some of customers, they still want to have this uh, physical contact with, with employees and also to feel that there is a service. You pay for a service, so you should have a service. It's interesting the rationale and logic people can use um, to, I suppose, justify their actions. But I, I, I do, I suppose, understand that point where you go somewhere, you're expecting a certain service, and then you don't get it. So you feel sort of slighted. Um, now, the point that you made about COVID accelerating the, the use, the acceptance, and implementation of technology is very true. And we've been calling it sort of the new digital age in some ways, mm. because there's been a huge increase in digitization. Um, part of it early on was obviously very necessary because you needed to be able to do things, but you had to social distance, you couldn't leave your home. Um, you know, there was a pandemic that was ravaging our society. So do, do you feel that the, in terms of, um, I suppose, neuroscience consumer behavior, that the pace of digitization is going to change the way things are done in the field? Like, will people start studying consumer behavior in, in different methods now? Because there's so much technology and people, people's brains are almost starting to be wired differently. Like that, there's always studies coming out about um, how, if you spend too much time on your phone, for instance, uh, it affects your brain in a certain way. Or if you spend too much time in front of a TV, it affects your brain a certain way. Or even reading books, digital versus on paper, has an effect on you. So with all these effects that are expected to come down the line as we become more and more digital, how will that change, you know, the study of consumer behavior? And I don't think that it will change that much how we uh, investigate consumer behavior. And one of the reasons is because there is no one method, there is no one approach that is best than another one. It's like every approach can bring different perspective on the same topic. So the brain is not always the only solution, you know, because... The brain is not like an independent entity. Is is as I said, it's part of your body. It's connected to your social environment. We are social animals, so the brain is, as I said, is building your reality based on the input it can get from the reality, you know, from the surrounding. So I, I know that when we talk about emotion and neuroscience, at some point we feel that we have full control over our behavior, but we are not. 
we, we, are, we are affected by what's happened in our surrounding by other people. And our behaviors is also um, dependent of the, the social structure where we live in. So why people are uh, so hurry uh, during our time, you know, and why they accept more automatization, for instance, because they think that I would save time if I use the self-checkout system rather than to, you know, have a conversation with the employee. It's because of the social system where we live. So the brain, is, and that's why I like with, with social neuroscience, is that it's, um, it connects our social reality to our physical reality, you know, how do how those systems are connected and how they react to each other. So I'm, I'm not expecting a huge um, uh, evolution in how we uh, study consumer behavior. I think we still need to bring sociology, anthropology, neuroscience, obviously, and psychology. But all of those approaches can bring uh, each a, a, a part of the explanation of why we have this behavior. It would be very, very sad to, to focus on only one method like neuroscience, for instance, because we lose a lot of very good insight and a very good opportunity to learn more about consumer behavior. Right. Have you noticed that since the pandemic, people are consuming differently? So let's say they used to prefer product A pre-pandemic, um, and now they prefer product B uh, as a result of their experience. Um, no, uh, but it's not because I didn't notice that it, that it doesn't exist or whatever. It's just something I, I was not very interested in. Uh, but as I said, the, the, the evolution I noticed is the willingness to use uh, technology. Yeah, for sure. I think um, for, for the younger generation, it's, it's fine because they, they have been born in this society where technology is everywhere. So for them, it's, it's very natural. For all the people, I would say from my age to... Uh, uh, older, then I think we, we have um, we have known another time where smartphone does not exist, internet didn't exist, and so on. So we can have this different perspective on the technology. And I think that with what happened with the COVID, it becomes uh, um, clear that we need to use the technology if we want to keep going with the with the society. It's it's a matter of um, time pressure, you know, and social pressure as well. It's quite impossible to don't have a smartphone nowadays. You would be completely disconnected from from your surrounding, from your relative, from your family, and so on. If you want to use only traditional system, then still you you will suffer because machines are everywhere and they are just they are going to increase. So you have to learn and to adapt to this new reality. And the COVID nineteen gave us this opportunity to learn and to integrate this new reality. So now I feel that we are more prepared for the for the future, you know, to see robots, to see self-checkout system, to see AI-based application, because we already use those, uh, those systems. What kind of robots are you expecting? Well, service robots, you know, um, like waiter in a restaurant. Uh, that's, that's one of the things we are discussing in academy is, is that a lot of works will disappear and will be replaced by, by service robots uh, because they are more efficient, they are more predictable, they are more easy to control. They are more standardized as well, so they bring less unexpected situations. And customers like the routine. You know, they like to feel that everything is predictable. I don't want to be <coughs> sorry. They don't want to be surprised. Um, you know, you go to a fast food restaurant. You know exactly what type of food you're gonna you're gonna eat. You know exactly what is the price. No matter where you go, it could be in Toronto, Montreal, Paris, or wherever you want. If it's the same brand. 
everything is standardized and that's what people like. I, I'm French. I used to go in France uh, quite uh, frequently. And uh, when I observe my, my Canadian and American fellows in France, I feel that, you know, they're always t speaking about the French cuisine and stuff like this. But the thing is that when they uh, have a tour in Paris and they're tired, they are, they are hungry, they go to McDonald's because they know <laughs> McDonald's. You know, it's, uh, it's safe. They know exactly what they will have. Yeah. So there are some minor cultural adaptations. You 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 will find a, uh, in France you will find maybe the Mac baguette. Yeah. So it's kind of Big Mac but with this uh, baguette bread, and uh, the cheese is also different. You will have like uh, Comté or you know those stinky cheese <laughs> that might be very weird for American people. But but still, you can have your French fries, the Coca Cola, the the, the burger you used to eat when you're at home. So this pred predictability is very comfortable for people. And those service robots bring this predictability, you know. They are always smiling, they are always here, they are always working the same way, they are programmed to deliver the same service. Yeah. I suppose people always see comfort, especially when they're abroad and away from home. You, you want some of that. But hearing you describe that, I, I completely understand the wanting comfort, wanting something predictable, knowing exactly what's going to happen. But I think a part of the beauty of humans and human experience is that there's a bit of unpredictability there, right? You sometimes you want to go and you know you want to be surprised by the menu like that. That's why people, for instance, may like to try different restaurants or they'll ask their waiter or the chef, you know, what should I have here? Because there is a part of us that that you know has that innate curiosity that that wants to explore and try different things. Um, so if we when we move into the sort of new technological world. How do we preserve that? Like, how does that still exist, or is there any room for it? I think it's it's the distinction between niche market and mass market. I think the mass market is going to be more and more standardized uh, for some reason. I'm not very happy with this reality, but I, that's that's my my bet. I I think that we go towards more standardization. And uh, and then yes, you will have like niche market when you can have different clothes, uh, different food, different services from small companies who target small group of customers who are willing to have this different perspective, different experience. But I think for most of us, and it's still the case, we will have to deal with standardization. You want to dress, uh, you go to Zara or H&M. You know, it's everything standardized. You want to eat, you go to the fast food, it's standardized. You want to buy a car, they're all pretty much all the same. You know, it's, it's all standardized. You want to have an education and go to the university, it's standardized. It's the same program for everybody. It's the same courses, the same way to get graduated. So this, I think this is the society where we live. Everything tends to be standardized. And the automation and service robots and all of those applications is just increasing the standardization of those processes because all the robots will provide exactly the same service to everybody. And one of the things is, how do people will adapt to this new standardization, you know? Because you, me, we will have to learn how to deal with those robots. Uh, just a quick example. I, I took a flight last June to go to France, and um, it was, it's been years that I didn't take a flight because of the COVID and so on. And uh, at Pearson Airport, you have this machine when you have to use to register your language. So there is nobody to help you. You have to learn how to use the machine, how to print your your ticket, how to print the ticket for the language, to register the language, to control that you make the good registration that will not lose your language and so on. So you deal with the machine. 
and it's the same machine, the exact same process for everybody. And it's, it's just an example of all of those machines and robots are coming to the market to deliver standardized service and asking customers to work, basically, because you have to operate the machine. The machine can work only if you're here to, you know, push on the buttons, to put the language on the scale and so on. So you have to produce the work. And there is this debate in academic that there is difference between co-creation of value, which is the marketing discourse, and, and what we call prosumption. Prosumption is the contraction of production and consumption. You can consume something if you accept to produce it. Uh, so, as I said, you want to uh, withdraw money, you have to operate the ATM. Uh, you want to order something to McDonald's, you have to use the, the automated uh, uh, self-checkout to select yourself the product and so on. You want to take a flight, you have to buy your tickets yourself on the internet, you have to put your luggage into the machine, you have to print the ticket board and everything. So you can basically consume whatever you want as long as you accept to co-produce the service. Right. Yeah, it's been, I suppose we've been on this path for a while now. And I can tell you, um, I've been at Pearson and everyone hates those machines. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not But we have no friendly. choice, right? We have no choice. They're not very friendly. But uh, I suppose part of it is also a learning curve for individuals. Because uh, if I think about the Pearson example, like I was stuck behind some folks who just did not know how to operate the machine which obviously made it take longer and they usually have attendants around who will come over and try to help you but uh, I suppose once everyone learns about it a bit more they know how to operate it then that is when we will actually gain the efficiency that those machines are meant for because they they put them out there for that reason right they have them in sort of a kiosk style where everyone lines up in different areas and the idea is you quickly go in, you enter your own info, you get your sticker, you attach it onto your luggage, and you're good to go. Um, so I'm sure when they initially did some of those studies, they found time saving. Um, but that time saving won't come in until people learn how to use the machine. And so maybe, you know, something they can do is actually give people, uh, make it one, easier to use, more intuitive, or two, um, maybe when you're you know, booking your ticket online, have, giving a little crash course on how to use it. I'm sure many people would find that very helpful. Um, so, so that's interesting that we are sort of headed into this digitized, standardized world with the idea that it's going to save us time and allow us to enjoy life more. Um, so I think that's the other part of COVID, right, is that people started to understand that life is fragile that, it, you know, anything can happen and that they needed to enjoy it. And that sort of there was a, a reinforcement in this work life balance debate that's been going on for a while. Um, people genuinely started to value their lives more and their, um, their time outside of work because they realized that you know, anything can happen and mm. that we need to enjoy life. So I, I think that's shifted some behaviors. Um, it's. Definitely, I think for the better, because it's good to focus on yourself and to enjoy life because life is meant to be enjoyed. Um, but have you, when we think about, you already mentioned that the biggest change you've seen from COVID is the acceptance of technology. But I suppose a bit of neuroscience can help us here is that how can people adapt to technology more quickly? Like, are, are there certain, like, uh, things that they can do to become more proficient besides just using it every day? 
Um, so it's it's not about neuroscience per se, but it's uh, it's about it's still about the role of customers in this process, because you mentioned that if you operate the machine for the first time, uh, maybe you're losing the process. You know, you don't know exactly what to do. You're stressed as well because okay, if I make a mistake, then I will probably lose my luggage or whatever. So, you know, it's it's a bit um, anxious. It's a very anxious situation. But my 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 perspective as a researcher is when I observe that. What is the role of the other customers who are waiting in the line? And my perspective on this, and that's uh, that's also one of, of the research projects I have at, the, at this time, is I consider the other customers as managers. They are, they are here to control the quality of the service delivery. Because think about it. In the past, you have this company with frontline workers and managers Managers can control the work of frontline workers, and frontline workers can control that consumers use, consume, buy the products as it should be. So they have this direct control over the behaviors of people. If they need help, they can bring help. If they need advice, they can give advice. If they do something wrong, they can ask politely to the customers to change their behaviors. You know what I mean? But if you're in front of a machine was no conscious, no any type of interaction skills, then who is going to jump into the process to say, hey, you shouldn't use the machine like this. It's supposed to be like that. Well, it's the other customers. So customers will be more and more engaged in the process as managers to control the other customers, to be sure that they are using the machine properly. If you don't do it or it's too long, they will help you or they will teach you how to use the machine. Let me just give you an example. Um, sorry, I'm always uh, taking the same example, but it is. I think it's very uh, interesting. Is when I was in Paris last summer, I was with my kids and I had to buy uh, a metro ticket. So it was a long time since I didn't buy a metro ticket in Paris. So it's it's like Toronto. It's a huge city. Everybody's very busy. They are very impatient. You always have long lines everywhere and so on. So. And I was, you know, struggling with the, the, the computer to find tickets because you have different zones in Paris. It's quite complicated. So I wanted to be sure that I would buy the right ticket. So I take my time. And there was a guy behind me. At some point, he said, look, I can help you if you want. You know, just to go faster. I said, okay, fine. And he, you know, he knew exactly what to do. And he was doing the stuff for me. And he was explaining to me, okay, you should go there, select this and that. You have two kids. How is the, the age of your kids? Uh, four and seven. Okay, so choose this ticket, blah, blah, blah. So it's like a manager, you know, you're working in a factory, you're supposed to produce a certain amount of product. Right. And if you're too slow because you're a beginner, then the manager jumps in and say, okay, look, it doesn't work like this. Do this, do that, and so on. So they are accepting to take this role of managing other customers and to control the service quality. If I give you another example, uh, something that is very familiar, I think, we pretty much all have used at least once Uber Eats. Okay, you order food on Uber Eats. You're a consumer. Okay, so you are hungry. You're lazy as well. You don't want to go out. You have nothing to cook, so you order food online. Once the worker is in your home to deliver the food, the last, the, the next thing you have to do on your Uber application is to evaluate the worker. So you evaluate if he was late, if he was on time, if the food was cold or hot or whatever, and then you grade the performance of the worker on the on a star system from one to five. And you know 
that depending on the, the, the grade you will give to the worker, this worker can, give, can be kicked out of the system because the grade is too low, which means that the quality of the service is not satisfying. So I can't trust this worker, he has to go out. But who is deciding if the worker can still work for the company or no? It's you, the consumer. And you also decide what would be the salary of this worker because you decide the tips you want to give to the worker. So maybe you do it you know, in a way that is uh, spontaneous, you know, it's, it's just part of the application and you do it, that's it. But the consequences for the worker are pretty high, you know, and, and when you do this, you're on a, on a system, automated system, where there is no manager from Uber. There is no manager from Uber on the field who are controlling the service quality of those workers. So who is, who is controlling the service quality? Who can say that my experience with those workers, drivers or whatever was fine? You, as a, as a manager, would do it. So the thing is that I think we need, we need to shift uh, a little bit the way we perceive the role of consumers over the market. Consumers are not passive consumers. They are co-producers and they will be also co-managers of the, the, the service production and the service uh, delivery because of the machine. Right. Well, I mean, Uber definitely has changed the landscape for food delivery and transportation. But while you were speaking about the clients or the customers who are waiting in line, they can also help manage. I was thinking, I suppose the other part of that is that you can make the machine smarter so that it interacts with you and says, okay, what do you need? Where do you want to go? Um, and it sort of walks you through the process. Uh, and that would be helpful. And I, and I guess that's where AI and ML come in, is to, the more that it'll inter that machine will interact with people, the more information that it'll gain, it'll become smarter and smarter in its decision-making. So for instance, it might realize that you know, people down on Young and Dundas, the most popular place to go to is you know, uh, Queens. They, they might go down to Queens Park. So it'll, it'll have like suggestions for you right at the top. Okay, here are some you know, popular destinations. Are, are you going to any of these? And you can click on one of those and just sort of um, augment the process and make things go along a bit faster um, instead of that onus being on another individual that's also in the line. Well, I think it depends on the value and the profit you can make with this type of interaction. If... If the interaction is about giving advice and building this long-term relationship with customers to engage them with the company, with the brand and so on, that maybe company would be willing to invest in more smart system, you know, who have this machine learning system, they can increase their capacity to uh, have a, let's say, a, a smart discussion with customers and so on. But the examples I mentioned, like, you know, registering the language, it doesn't bring any money to the company. You know, so why would they invest in a smarter system if customers can do the work for free? Uh, that's, that's my perspective on this. I think that artificial intelligence, machine learning, and all of those applications uh, will be implemented in a situation, in service interactions, where we need to interact with people, you know, because the service is about interaction, so, um, advices, or stuff like this. But there are a lot of mechanical tasks self-checkout system, registering languages and stuff like this. We don't want to talk to people. We just want to make them what they have to do as quickly as possible and to get out because it's a matter of, of volume. It's a matter of, you know, efficiency. And if you start to talk to people, you're not efficient, you see. 
uh, it's uh, there, there is a study that's quite old now that um, investigates the the experience at the convenience store, and and if customers and frontline workers tend to be polite or no, and the results show in convenience store politeness is a burden because it takes time to ask people how do you feel today, how is your day going, blah blah blah, because you engage in a conversation that is against the flow of customers coming to the the convenience store. So we tend to erase all of those social interactions for the sake of efficiency. Hey, hey, I scan the product, goodbye, and, and that's it. In a few seconds, it's done because you have other customers and you win money because of the volume of sales you do every day. You know. So if the strategy is based on the value because this interaction is valuable, because customers expect to have this interaction, then yes, they will probably develop smarter services. But if the strategy is volume, and you just want to increase the volume of sales every day or stuff like this, then probably they will not invest in the smarter services. And my guess is that in the future, um, uh, premium customers will have access to human being interactions and non-premium customers will have to deal with machines. Because even though the machine tends to increase on the, at the organizational front line, the human being interaction is still valuable. But it costs money because you have to hire people, you have to train them, you have to keep them motivated, you have to control the efficiency of their work and so on. So it costs money to the company. So if you want to have access to this type of service and type of interaction, you will have to pay for it. If you can't afford it, then you will have to interact with machine. Right. Well, I suppose it'll also depend on what you're trying to do. Because there are certain situations where you need a person yeah. uh, and it's, it's not very... Uh, easy or um, feasible to do it with a machine. Um, so I, I, that just goes back to what we were talking about earlier with those sort of hybrid experiences where you're going to have certain experiences that just don't doesn't require a person. Um, and again, people are becoming more and more digital, especially the new gen- generation. They're digitally native. Um, so for them, it's just a way of life. Like, And it's something they actually prefer more. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier today, we were having a conversation about... Um, just uh, people wanting to, you know, be able to do things on their own. Like they don't want to socialize too much. They just want to be able to work from home, just be very digital and, you know, have set their life the way they want to essentially, right? Like if they don't want to come in, they don't want to come in. They they don't have to. They have the option of working remote. If they don't want to interact with, let's say, a teller when they go to a bank, they don't have to. They can go to the ATM machine. So it, it is providing clients with more choices in some aspect because now they can choose what type of service they want to have. Um, I did notice that you've also done a fair bit of research on chatbots. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the insights that you gained from that research? So I, I, was, um, I was curious to know when chatbot is satisfying for customers and when it's not satisfying for customers. So my assumption was... Um, it depends on customer's emotional state, basically. Because, uh, as I said earlier in the conversation, uh, when something bad happened, when something unexpected happened, you have an emotion, and our uh, human psychology push us to share our emotion. If the, the, the support you need is from the company, you need to share your emotion with the company. So, let's say that you want to have basic information like uh, the uh, 
uh, open hours of the store or if the product is available or if it's in stock or whatever, you know, that, that kind of basic information. There is no much emotion in that kind of interaction. So chatting with a chatbot is fine because you don't expect the machine to share your emotion because basically you have no emotion. So the opposite would be a burden for the customers. If they had to, as you said, you know, sometimes we don't want to talk to people. We just want to the, to get the things and that's it. So if you have to explain and, and you know, to be polite and to say hello and to say goodbye, it's, it's a lot of, uh, it's a burden for something that eventually is quite simple, you know? So easy access, affordability, efficiency, Chatbots can deliver all of those value to the customers when they don't need to share specific emotions. However, if something happens and you expect emotional support, cognitive support, you know, from, from someone, then the chatbot will be the burden because the chatbot has no, at least at this moment, has no capacity to show emotional support. And even though they can show emotional support, you know that it's fake. A chatbot is just a system. They don't have any feelings, you know. They can simulate things, but you know that they are simulating. It's not true. So you prefer probably, actually, my, that's my research show, is that you prefer to interact with human beings if you have this emotion. Right. And, and that makes sense because people are very emotionally driven. We're emotional yeah. beings. Um, something that I've been curious about, there's, there was a word that I came across in, in your research, psychophysiology. Mm-hmm. What is that? <laughs> so psychophysiology is uh, it's a pretty old uh, concept, actually. It's basically the study of psych- psychology through physiology. So we use physiological uh, reactions as correlates to psychological processes. So just to give you a basic example, if I have an emotion, which is a psychological process, this emotional episode will be um, correlated to uh, facial expressions, for instance, or uh, uh, physiological reactions, body reactions, brain reactions. So all of those physiological reactions can help me to identify, to quantify, and to study uh, emotion or any psychological process. So psychophysiology is the combination of physiological data to investigate psychological process. That's interesting. Um, now, I also know that you have a new lab that you'll be operating soon. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the lab is uh, a psychophysiological lab, actually. So basically, we have equipment for uh, measuring emotional reactions in different marketing settings, different marketing situations. And then we can inform decision maker about how customers perceive their stimulus, how they perceive the task they have to complete, um, uh, how they decide and judge uh, different situations based on these uh, emotional reactions. Because as I said uh, earlier, uh, emotion is always at the center of every uh, psychological process, especially processes that are interesting in marketing, like decision-making, judgment, and development of attitude and stuff like this. So uh, emotion is, um, is the key to understand and to answer the question, why? Because you can observe, um, you have a trigger and you have a reaction. It's something quite mechanical. But what's happened in the middle, you know? What explains exactly this type of reactions to my stimulus? And then the lab is dedicated to investigate this mediating process 
to see how emotion shaped the behaviors based on the stimulus and the nature of the stimulus. That sounds fascinating. Do you have any particular projects that you'll be working on? Yeah, so um, so far I work only for an academic project, but the lab is open to collaboration with the industry as well. Um, so I'm working on the effect of uh, communication channels on frontline uh, workers' behaviors. So the, the, the research I mentioned earlier that depending on how you communicate with customers, uh, can you share the emotion and if not, what happened in your behavior? So at this moment, we are conducting studies about this, uh, this topic. Yeah, sounds really fascinating. And I look forward to uh, reading the studies that come out of that lab. Yeah. Um, well, this has been a very insightful conversation. I've learned Thank you a very lot. much. So thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Perfect. Um, and now, just for a bit of housekeeping, um, I wanted to remind everyone that Wealth Chat is a monthly podcast. Episodes will be dropped towards the end of each month. And in the interim, we will have clips for everyone. Uh, please be sure to share, like, and subscribe.